Howdy. Welcome to Managing Expectations. Uh, one in a series of book club editions. So uh, I'm Jeff Winger. I'm your host. With me is the Segundo, Jared Reiser. Howdy, Jared. Hello. How's it going, Jeff? I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time hearing you. Yeah, right. <laughs> I said, how's it going, buddy? Hey, Buster. And special appearance is a friend of the podcast. Uh, uh, welcome back to the show, Tirza Major. Howdy, Tirza. Hi, fellas. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for, thanks for being back. So uh, this time out, we read Kurt Vonnegut's book, Bluebeard. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut was one of the great American novelists of post-war America. Uh, he was uh, 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 really hit it big in the late 1960s with his book, Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, he had worked in the, he had worked loosely in the field of um, uh, science fiction but he always grappled with more serious themes, one of which was uh, war and man's inhumanity to man. He himself had been in the infantry, the American infantry in World War II and had been taken captive by the Germans. He was kept in, a, uh, in Dresden and narrowly survived the firebombing of Dresden. Uh, uh, Dresden is a very um, controversial uh, act because it had very little strategic importance, um, but the allies, I think if I, if I remember correctly at the urging of Winston Churchill uh, urged, um, just wanted to punish Germany. And so they leveled this ancient city. It was, it was a firebombing. They dropped incendiary bombs um, and it just caught everything on fire. And it was, you know, I, I mean, it's, it, it, it was, it was viewed, uh, you know, look, I mean, so many people suffered under the Nazis under the Nazis that there wasn't a lot of sympathy for the everyday Germans. And, you know, that's, you know, that, that, that's fine. But then um, people also want to hold America and Britain to a higher standard, which at least with Dresden, it seems that they came up short. Certainly Vonnegut felt so. And that was incorporated in his book, Slaughterhouse-Five. And that put him on the map and it put him into the most elite uh, literary uh, circles. Um, he would go on and in the 70s, he did uh, Breakfast of Champions. I think he, mm, uh, you know, so he was, he, was on the, he was on the map and on the bestseller mm -hmm. list through the 70s and 80s. And uh, uh, I think he's a, he's really funny. He's a funny writer. His hero was Mark Twain. Like Mark Twain, he was, um, commercially successful, though not, not as successful as, um, 
I don't know, some, you know, he's no, no James Patterson, uh, but he could write. Um, he wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't as commercially successful as uh, Mark Twain. On the other hand, Twain managed to be swindled out of most of his money. Uh, and I think Vonnegut held on to his. Um, he, uh, I think we're going to see in Bluebeard some overlap between Vonnegut's real life and that of the protagonist in Bluebeard, the abstract expressionist painter Rabo Karabekian. Um, but so, do you guys feel like I left out any? introductory information that's necessary for the listeners anything you want to add to the introduction before we turn our attention to Tirza and find out why she didn't like it no <laughs> okay all right great so uh kurt vonnegut's blue beard published in 1987 um tirza what's your problem well, i, I- <laughs> not that i didn't like it i you know when i texted you when i read after i finished it i just literally did not know what i felt or what i thought at all and i still don't really but this is my first it's funny for you isn't it because you're so in touch with your feelings (laughs) it depends on who you ask i think Uh, (laughs) which feelings yeah um but it's my first vonnegut ever and Maybe, maybe I just like, I didn't know any of that about, I didn't know anything about him going into it, just went straight into it and felt, I think it's the most neutral I've ever felt about a book when I finished it. Didn't like it, didn't dislike it. I just, I feel like there's so much more, um, perhaps a better place I could have started. And then if I would have had a groundwork, maybe I could have appreciated this book more. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm hoping most, that you guys will, will win me over. The most and neutral I can you've a... ever felt about a book. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Jared, thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, you know, I, I'd give it a thumbs up, but I, I, the way I felt about the book isn't far from what Tirza was saying. Um, wasn't the greatest book I've ever read, but there was, there was, it was interesting. I think some of the characters I kind of enjoyed more than others. Like I, I liked how much that Cersei Berman, is that? Sir, yeah, Cersei Berman. Mm-hmm. I like, I liked that little relationship. Between it was, the it two. was, yeah, it was, yeah. It was, yeah. But you could also see why it would irritate him, right? Right. So that's what I thought was funny is like, he's fascinated with her, but at the same time, she, irritates him hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah i've never been in a relationship like that in my life when i was reading about hey, except for the all book. of them <laughs> yeah. oh hey, hey, hey tears i'm sorry to interrupt um one thing <laughs> do not do not do not disclose in any way shape or form what is in the potato barn potato barn <laughs> because that is that is the overarching thing uh that's what uh, kept me. Uh, I mean, that's what that's what propelled me uh, as I reread it. Because honestly, I couldn't remember what was in the potato barn. I, so, so I reread it to uh, to to talk about it here today. Um, Tirzi, you were trying to say. 
Oh, when I was reading about the book in preparation for the podcast, that's one of the themes that they talked about is his uh, complicated relationship with women. <laughs> and that's one of the themes of the book. And uh, I think that came through. He, he had Strange. a great relationship with Edith, his second wife. Right. Right. Okay. But with, and Cersei's, I mean, she's kind of terrible. She's kind of a terrible person, yet they still like each other. <laughs> I think anybody who's bossy and changes your house around without asking is a terrible person. Is but a terrible person. Yeah, that's my feelings. <laughs> well, and then there was like the first thing she, well, I don't know if it was like the first thing she said to him, but the first conversation she they have, she asks, tell me how your parents died. I think I'm going to use that. I think I'm going to use that. <laughs> I just love his response to that. How did my parents die? <laughs> what kind of question is that? <laughs> so when we when we meet Rabo Karabekian, he's living Karabekian, by the way. Um, you know what? I'm going to ask my Armenian friend Pagosian. Hey, I, I listened to the audio version, and that's how the guy pronounced it. So. Karabekian. Uh, okay. Agre Agree to disagree. <laughs> like, like the meaning of San Diego. We're going to have to agree to disagree. Um, uh, so so uh, when, so uh, Rabo uh, is, uh, starts out with so it's it Bluebeard is the fictional autobiography of a Second World War veteran and abstract expressionist Rabo Karabekian. Okay, I you look, you can say it how you want to say it. I'm gonna say it how I want to say it. And Tirza, <laughs> uh, you can break the tie, but if you ever want to be back, I think you know I think what to say. People should pronounce things however they want to pronounce things and <laughs> It, there's no one right way to say anything. So Kara, you're both Kara right. <laughs> See, man, you beat me to that. Now. You beat me to that joke by a split second. That never would have happened when I was a younger man. So like Rabo Karabekian, I have grown old and he sets about telling his story. And so he lives in uh, uh, his second wife's, what, 19 room uh, house in the Hamptons. Uh, they bought some property to keep it from being developed, which has a giant potato barn on it, a large barn. And uh, uh, Rabo had moved out to the Hamptons from the city, uh, what, in the, in the 50s, right? With his then, with his first wife, and his two children. Um, uh, when we meet Rabo, he he is estranged from his grown sons. They don't speak with him, uh, and his. Uh, I, I, are, are we told whether or not his first wife's still alive, or it doesn't really matter because she she remember. just she could she wasn't really supposed. I mean, and you can see this too, because he, he was a less than uh, ex, um, attentive. 
he was he was a less than attentive father and he wasn't a good provider and he wanted to paint after the war and uh uh she wanted him to have a steady job to put beans on the table and you can see that dynamic playing out in 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 all sorts of marriages where there's uh an artistic element right so when we meet rabbo he is uh, an old man, he's in his early 70s, right? Um, he's lost an eye in the war and he starts telling the story. So his parents survived the Armenian genocide. Okay, so Karabekian, 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 um, however it's pronounced, uh, is an Armenian name. And his parents uh, survived the Armenian genocide in the early... 1900s uh, at the hands of the Turks uh, and they ended up as many Armenians did in California and uh, uh, there uh, what young Rabo wants to be an artist so there is a guy of a, a, a famous artist and I think that there are a couple of real life artists that this could have been based on, but there were um, commercial illustrators in the early part of the 20th century who were stunning in their ability to, I mean, I mean they, uh, their, their drawings, their illustrations would be photographic except they make people look so much more beautiful than they actually are most of the time in, in, in real life. So, uh, you know, just people with, uh, 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 okay. So, I mean, like il il illustrating, um, books that young people read back before there was uh, young adult mm -hmm. fiction. Uh, it used to be things like Robin Hood and, um, King Arthur and just, you know, stories like this that were okay for Anglo-America. And then those were often uh, illustrated. And so this guy, the fictional artist is a guy named Dick Gregory, but he's actually Armenian. And it turns out his name is actually Gregorian. And um, this excites Rabo's mother. So, uh, he starts writing letters to the great um, Richard Gregorian and um, he's getting replies. And finally he goes to be the student. Uh, anybody feel confident telling us about Dick Gregory's character or his lack of character? <laughs> So he, he was, uh, he was living with, uh, um, so what, there was like a butler, right? Who was like a weird, mean butler. It's like his best friend slash personal assistant. Valid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were like in the war together or something, but there was definitely a like a number one and number two hierarchy between them. And there is a young, uh, a young woman, a lovely, a fetching 
Lass, uh, also in the Gregory residence in New York City. Um, anybody have her name? Uh, it's in... uh, Marilee Kemp. Yeah, Marilee Kemp. So she's sweet and uh, kind of Gregory's consort, right? Seems fair to say. Mm -hmm. But um, he's cruel. Gregory is cruel. And so uh, uh, Rabo gets in. He ends up taking, um, uh, learning how to do certain things from Gregory. But Gregory's also a dastardly figure. And so um, he's inevitably, Tears. what were you going to say? Well, I kind of enjoyed, I enjoyed the flashbacks, maybe the most of the book when he's young and he's apprenticing with Gregory. Mm -hmm. And that whole uh, scene where he tells him to paint the room exactly, just paint the room. And he just, he does it. He does it. And then he, doesn't he destroy the first painting? Because he's mm -hmm. such a terrible person destroys the first painting so he does it again that perfect painting how many times does he do it he does it two or three times where it's almost it, as if you could step into the painting and you'd be stepping into the room right you know and then i'm trying to remember was it jealousy or just cruelty that had gregory doing that well so what I couldn't remember now, I'm, I'm forgetting who was telling, you know, Rabo this, but right, he's, he, he has talent, right? So he, he can look at anything and he can draw anything. But was it Gregorian who was telling him that something was missing from his, his paintings? Like, um, I can't remember how he put it, but. Like he had no soul, basically. It, you, he didn't have the it factor to be you know, as good as some of the greats that were- But that was, like that was true of Gregory as well, right? I mean, that he was uh, an incredible technician of yeah, reproducing yeah. reality, but, but, they, but they had no, for, for lack of a better term, soul. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'm struck by, um, you know, Kara Beckian's, uh, you know, uh, uh, piecemeal philosophy about human soul, uh, about how uh, essentially that human beings are just meat animated <laughs> by a soul that's inside of us like a like a neon light. Um, so um, you know what? And that's what that's what drove him towards that the modernist, because uh, that was just beginning, right? He was kind of on the ground floor. Of that in New York, right? So, but so there was no Rabo Karabekian, there was no Terry Kitchen, but the other writers, Jackson Pollock, mm -hmm. Willem de Kooning, uh, and um, and others, mm -hmm. uh, were all abstract expressionists. And Vonnegut takes us into the beginning of that, and I, I actually found that very interesting um, because those guys were incredibly troubled. Um, um, but abstract expressionism was the first 
real American art movement. Uh, Tom Wolfe has written about how Americans refuse, and by the way, Wolfe is no, is no fan of abstract expressionism. He um, uh, was very critical of it in his book, The Painted Word, but he often talks about how Americans view themselves as sweaty little provincials compared to the great uh, artistic font of Europe and how uh, the Americans cannot get over genuflecting to Europe and, and the old world and saying, oh, yes. And I mean, you know, look, I mean, uh, okay, so... Uh, Michelangelo uh, knocked it out of the park. Um, um, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, but, you know, it's like there. It, it's not all about the Europeans. So so Tom Wolfe may have been in a somewhat of an American chauvinist. And I think uh, Vonnegut was in his way. Um, I mean, not. Uh, I mean, he was, he was frequently out of step because he was, he was very uh, liberal in his political views, some of which were quite noble. Uh, he was uh, part of uh, a group uh, that was working to get uh, writers and uh, people uh, with uh, guilty of free expression or speaking freely in like the Soviet Union out. Um, but then, you know, a, a lot of other things. And certainly by the time he died um, in what, 2006, 2007, something like that, he'd become very bitter just about the nature of the world. Uh, he, he felt that humanity was um, just a, a cancer on the planet and uh, things like Hurricane Katrina were uh, the the planet trying to rid itself of this parasite of, of humanity. Uh, he was very demoralized, disillusioned by the, you know, the, the, the George W. Bush um, uh, administration, um, you know, so uh, he kind of died bitter. Um, I can't remember. There was a book that he published right before he died, maybe man without a country, I think. And it was, uh, you know, he, it wasn't, it wasn't very funny. I mean, he had stopped being funny because things had gotten very serious. And this is a guy who saw the I mean, he was at the battle of the bulge and survived the firebombing of Dresden. So you would think that he uh, was able to laugh himself through it. Uh, and maybe he was for a long time, but by the time he was old, he'd outlived his, you know, all of his friends. So there so that goes okay so um dick gregory throws rabbo and mary lee out of the house after a tryst is it safe to call it a tryst no because they that hadn't happened yet it was they had promised to never go to the museum of modern art and he that's right them. because he despised modern art that's right yeah. because he was such so a that it was all forgive me it was all <laughs> it was all emotional at that point their relationship yes so then when it's when they get thrown out of the house that they have the tryst mm -hmm. yes 
And she's yeah. older than Rabo. That's right, but younger than Gregory. Correct. So um, Gregory, as we said, uh, was a tremendous pro-fascist figure. And so he was so excited uh, when Mussolini came to power in Italy that he moved, he and his valet friend and number two, um, moved to Italy where they are uh, feted and honored as the great Dick Gregory, the American artist who's a great fan of Il Duce. And, and so they, you know, they live high in the uh, uh, fascist regime in, uh, and then they get killed by the uh, British, right? Yeah. Yeah. In, in their uniforms, executed as traitors. <laughs> Outstanding. See, Von, see, you know, one of the other things about this book, um, it has, if not a happy ending, at least a uh, an ending of with resolution. It at um, least came to an end. What? I said it at least came to an end. <laughs> That's War and the peace. Thing. The War and peace comes ended. to an end. <laughs> so. Um, some of the, uh, parts. Okay. So look, I like, oh, I really turned on to Vonnegut in the eighties. I read his book, Palm Sunday, which is a book of essays that I think are terrific. It, it, it actually kind of, I mean, one of like just the nerdiest things about me, uh, is is um, uh, I love I love a good essay. I'm not I'm not gonna lie. I, I'm just a fiend for a good essay. You know, it's. Uh, it's Would you it, say essay? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um. <laughs> wow, I, I walked right into that. Um, That's so. What I'm here for. <laughs> to I make obvious jokes tears i am not the brains when it comes to this show <laughs> <laughs> well brian's not here so i don't know <laughs> yeah jared's like the doc severinson <laughs> i don't know who that is uh... <laughs> i rest my case so uh um the I, I, I just I so so uh, Rabo Karabekian uh, paints with uh, what kind of paint? It's uh, it's like, it, it's like I, I'm impressed. Like Durashin Ultra Lux. <laughs> it had like this really corporate, um, uh, like house paint. Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. yeah he's using <laughs> house paint. And so, so here's the thing about Karabekian's paintings. Uh, they, were, they were bold, they were ambitious, they were plain in a way that they, nobody else had done. Uh, so for example, um, we, uh, there, was a, there was a, so one of his famous works was a Six Deer and a Hunter. 
And so it was like a, a, a painted canvas. I don't know, I'm making this up because I can't remember. It's just like a green canvas, uh, six black stripes for the deer, one red stripe for the hunter. And that was the painting. So it was huge too, right? This yeah, painting was like, yeah, yeah, unbelievably he, big. He always worked on really big canvases. So, so Pollock worked on big with big canvases. Um, uh, Mark Rothko did the thing with colors. Um, Jared, you'll you'll be familiar with this. So in in Mad Men, um, there's this great scene where uh, Burt Cooper brings a Rothko into his office and it's the one and it's like it's like red with kind of like a pink square and then like another like a burgundy square or something like that I mean I mean there's similar but different colors and then they kind of like blend one color into another and uh uh there's that great scene where uh Harry Crane as uh, is standing next to Cooper, and he says, uh, <laughs> "What do you think of it?" And uh, Bert Cooper goes, "Mr. Crane, no one's ever asked me that before. Perhaps because it's none of their damn business." <laughs> Anyway, Mark Rothko did the thing with colors, but Rabo Karabekian was doing this other thing with like, just like lines from top to bottom as I, as I envisioned them, uh, um, co covering it. And, I, and, and, and so anyway, the, the paint, the paint in question, um, it didn't last. And so while in so like his biggest work, which hung in a corporate headquarters lobby, sat in storage at the Museum of Modern Art and under those conditions, all the paint dried out, peeled and fell to the ground in flakes so that there was nothing left but blank canvases. Tirza, what were you gonna, did you just, just raise your hand? Did you I raise your hand? No, I think I was like the paint fell to the floor. And for some reason, my hand did this because I was just like reliving it with you. I'm so into it. <laughs> just if you have to go to the restroom, honey, you just go. OK, you don't have, you don't have to right. raise your hand. Can't use, uh, can't use virtual hands here. Today. I was just about to toss one of, the, one of those up. OK, OK, so. so so this is like a great humiliation. And while the other abstract expressionists are, continue to be uh, honored and renowned and sold for you know millions and millions of dollars more than the painters ever made in their lives, Karabekian's uh, great works have disintegrated. Uh, and I think he... He, he kind of willingly acknowledges that he wasn't as good as those other guys anyway. He wasn't as prolific. I mean, he kind of stopped painting uh, long before Durashin, whatever. If, you know, you guys just keep looking, okay, what, while I'm vamping it, here. Was it, um, 
when you're talking about the kind of paint he was using, is that the same kind of paint too that, was it Marilee who took some of the paint from Gregorian? And when he found out about it later, is that when he pushed her down the stairs? No, uh, that oh, is, yeah. that's one of the cruel cruelties that um, uh, was in that uh, that was demonstrated by him. Uh, Marilee did uh, skim some paint from Gregory to give to Rabo, and um, she got pushed down the stairs for her trouble. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for nothing, you two. Satin. Satin Duralux. Satin Duralux. So, yeah, but I mean, that's such a, that's such a, okay. And I don't know why I don't find it so memorable because it's so mundane. Maybe, I mean, it's just like a consumer. I mean, it's like a, a mad, it's like a Madison Avenue kind of name for a new paint. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we watched Mad Men. We, we know how that works, you know, I mean, it's like, Okay, somebody's got a new line of paint. What are we going to do? You got to call it the right thing or else people won't buy it. Tab was going to be patio <laughs> until Don Draper didn't like it. <laughs> That's how it works. That was a documentary, right? Mad Men? <laughs> anyway, anyway, Satine Duralux. Uh, and it didn't last. And, and yet it all turned out okay for Rabo because he... Uh, was um, he was turned out to be a terrific collector. And so he had one of the most impressive private collections of abstract expressionists. So between that and marrying his beloved Edith, who was wealthy, wealthier than Croesus, um, he, he lived very well, but he was somewhat lonely. So his, his friend, Paul Salinger is a writer also a World War II vet, but he's a really damaged guy. And so he comes into contact with a woman probably 20 or 30 years, his junior, Circe Berman. And so what we, what we see in Bluebeard is the story about, you know, an old guy with kind of an interesting past, and then it's cut up with flashbacks and recollections of... The past include and, and it includes the Armenian uh, genocide at the hands of the Turks, World War II, the um, abstract expressionist movement in New York. Um, you know, so those are some pretty big themes in a book that I think is simple and easy to read. I don't know that Vonnegut is the deepest writer. But I think he's great anyway. I mean, I think he's I think he's deep in tone. And in fact, I listened to many years ago to tell you how I mean, this is like the late 80s or early 90s, but you could go to the library and check out cassette tapes because it was media. And there was an interview with Kurt Vonnegut. Now, Vonnegut was from Indianapolis. His father had a huge and very successful um, uh, hardware store. And I think, I mean, I, I know that when my dad 
left the farm and went to um, Indianapolis. Uh, Vonnegut's was still there. Um, that is the, the hardware store. And I got to think that it still would be, even if it's owned by a major conglomerate, why wouldn't you continue to trade on the Vonnegut name? Anyway, so Vonnegut's from Indianapolis. My dad, you know, uh, came of age in Indianapolis. Um, wait, where was I going with this? What was I saying? Anybody? A little help? Sorry, I took my eyes off the ball there. Uh, you checked out an interview with him. Thank you. That's was that so hard? So anyway, so so most of my family relatives were in Indiana or from Indiana. So in this interview on cassette tape that I listened to many, many years ago, he was talking about going back to Indiana and visiting his relatives. Now, at this point, he is the, um, you know, the, a shining star in New York literary society. He's met the rich and famous. He is, in fact, himself rich and famous. So he goes back to uh, Indiana. And um, I don't know if it was if it was him or somebody else, but just talking to the relatives, uh, one person says to the other, and I don't, I, I, these people are barbarians. They're barbaric. They, ha they hold incredibly provincial, benighted attitudes towards life and the world and, and, and everything else. And, uh, and I think it was Vonnegut who said, no, just, just listen to the tone. Just listen to the tone. Um, they don't, and 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 I and I think that I was able to apply that to my own Hoosier family, uh, that they would say some stupid or uneducated things, um, but they often didn't mean ill. I mean. I, I, you know, of course, it's it's hard to gauge because, you know, you, you make any sort of, I don't know, you know, whatever, just a joke about anything, or if you make some sort of, I don't know, you make any sort of comment about the Armenians and, oh my God, you know, you're getting all sorts of hate mail from Sausalito or whatever. And, and you know, everybody everybody's so touchy about everything, but but, you know, frequently people are just like you know i watched will and grace do you know these guys are gay you know i mean they just don't know you know they just don't know <laughs> so don't be so sensitive well no, that's the last it, no it's it's not that it's like okay so then there's there's um uh, well, it's like, it's like, I mean, there's some people who uh, don't know what Will and Grace is about, and then are shocked and surprised and whatever. Uh, but then there's other people who don't know what it's about, and then are hateful about it. So I think Vonnegut was saying about his own relatives, they're not necessarily hateful people. This is what this is how I took it. I could be all wrong. It was a cassette 30 to 35 years ago. 
So, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna plant a flag on this particular point. They you, had cassette. You, you raised your hand again. <laughs> I didn't mean to. That was just a gesture. <laughs> I was gonna say they had cassette tapes in the children's section of the library in my little town that I grew up in. And I would just check out one at a time. I don't know if that was the rule or what, but I listened to all of those cassettes, every single one. Were and that was a great gift. Yeah, they were kids' books. I don't remember all of them. I know that's the first time I ever read A Wrinkle in Time was on one of those cassettes. That was the most memorable. But they were just they were just there, so I would use them. The ones the ones at the Littleton Public Library were a lot less sexy than the audiobooks that you come across today. I mean, they'd like been taken out of any sort. I mean, ah. it was like, seriously, I mean, it looked like something that came from some sort of government, um, you know, re recording project, you know, to like for posterity. There was one I listened to. Okay. I listened to get this. I listened to uh, Bill William F. Buckley talk about the nature of conservatism uh, I listened to the Kennedy Nixon debates and, and yeah, cause it was history. I mean, it was okay. Do you guys, I mean, so in 1960, um, uh, then vice president Richard Nixon was running for president against Senator John F. Kennedy. And th they had a series of debates and there, there are some very interesting things about this debate. Uh, for one thing, uh, it's widely held that Nixon lost and that Nixon lost because he didn't know how to master um, uh, the, the new mass communication tool of television. So he had a five o'clock shadow. Uh, uh, Kennedy had submitted to make up so he didn't seem sweaty and shiny uh, the way Nixon did. Um, um, let's see, also, you know, I mean, I don't know. Nixon wasn't, you know, wasn't Quasimodo, but Jack Kennedy was a really handsome guy, you know? Not that I'd leave yeah. him alone with my wife or you, Tirza, but, you know, <laughs> he was a really handsome guy. And, and, uh, and so it's widely held that Kennedy won those debates. But one thing that's been said is the people who listen to them on the radio, as opposed to watching them on television, actually, so, so the folks who listened to him on the radio thought that Nixon won, that he actually had the better arguments. By the way, what a contrast. So by the difference between the Kennedy-Nixon debates in 1960 and even the debates between George Herbert Walker Bush, Ross Perot, and Bill Clinton in 1992 was night and day. I mean, there, they weren't, there were no longer real debates, but just people scoring points and making. So, you know, politics has gotten dumber. Politics, always dumb, has gotten dumber. Um, or maybe democracy, always dumb, has gotten dumber. But anyway, um, uh, the other thing that was really interesting that I hope you guys find interesting is that both the Democrat and the Republican were like killing themselves to be more anti-communist than the other guy. 
So, so Jack Kennedy was like vehemently anti-communist for whatever reason. So there was a time like, like in the mid 20th century when the Democrats were, were anti-communist and felt like they had to stand up to the Soviet Union, uh, which is what the Cuban Missile Crisis was all about. That was um, uh, a democratic administration that just uh, uh, w- was did not want to be seen as backing down to the Soviets, and it got and that was like an incredibly close call by all by all accounts. I mean, people who lived through it, you know, remember it um, as a close call. Um, having said, okay, so like like Harry Truman was anti-communist. I mean, the um, and then so before. So through the 50s, from 52 to 60, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was a Republican. He was um, the president, stood up against um, the Soviets. Uh, Truman was a Democrat before him, stood up against the Soviets. It was, it was um, uh, during the Truman administration that um, Winston Churchill visited America and gave the Iron Curtain speech at a smallish college in Missouri. Tirza, do you happen to know the college? Mm. I'll think of it later. I feel like I, I should know, and yeah. I'm ashamed. No, I should know, but I'm old, so I forgot. Anyway, anyway, so th- that's just an interesting thing. Then... Johnson gets the Americans into Vietnam. Nixon takes over in Vietnam. And by 1972, the Democratic Party has become like the peacenik party who just thinks that any competition against the Soviets is like this immoral uh, game and so forth. And so they wanted out of Vietnam and in the whole whole schmear. Um, And then it's I mean, it was it was a generation before. the Democrats could think of anything worth fighting for. They were kind of, you know, the peace. Did you, did you learn all that from listening to the Kennedy Nixon debates on cassette? No. Or was that just the tipping point? Uh, The Kennedy Nixon debates, I think are in, okay. Sorry, did I do a thing? Wow, did I? Yeah. How long have I been yeah, talking? I think you blacked out. Well, if I didn't, certainly our our listeners did. No, all you okay? You get two things from the Kennedy Nixon debates, listening to them as I did. Uh, one is how each party was trying to be more anti-communist than the other. And the second is that it wasn't a Kennedy route by any by any means. That that these were two sharp guys who knew the subjects and were talking about them. I don't really remember anything. I don't remember any of the details. I mean, you know, policy and and whatnot. I mean, um, you know, what they had to say about the economy or race relations. And really, those were probably. It, well, you know, remember, I mean, 1960, this is before the Civil Rights Act. So, I mean, there's still, I mean, Black folks were still eating at separate counters and using 
you know, different bathrooms. So, wow, which is just like so stupid. I mean, just from a, I mean, wouldn't you be libertarian towards this? Just like let everybody use the same bathroom. Why would you want to have a second inferior bathroom for a whole class of other people if only because it's another bathroom that you have to build then you know maintain i mean why wouldn't you just want why wouldn't you just want to have a men's bathroom and a woman's bathroom of course i i having said that what i just said um i am not making an uh i'm not making an argument for just one unisex big bathroom of equality because I think uh, I think women ought to have a place need a place to go and I don't want I, I like the bathroom to myself I certainly don't want a strange woman in there here's what I know about bathrooms every single bathroom should have one of those vacant not vacant signs you know, have you seen that? And it was like a stall, or it's yeah. a door. You throw the lock and on the outside, it will say vacant or not vacant. There should be a law where that is required for every single bathroom stall. Otherwise, and I know it's different for you fellas, but in a woman's bathroom, <laughs> there's a certain level of like eye contact that can be achieved when trying to find right. a vacant bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> And it is the most in there. horrifying, yes, the most horrifying <laughs> experience. So every bathroom stall should have a vacant, not vacant. I just look under the door. I just get down and just kind of look under and see. <laughs> yeah. You know, also yeah, horrifying. so when you're talking about <laughs> how ridiculous that was, right, with the different bath, you know, bathrooms for white folks and bathrooms for black folks. I think just racism back then. I mean, we, so we still have racism today, but it was just disgusting back then. It was like on a different level. It was almost like we can't share these bathrooms together because we might catch something, you know, from them. It was like a, that was kind of like the attitude, you know, it wasn't just about the difference of the skin color, but I felt like from what I've read before about that is it was also kind of like I know it sounds terrible, but like a germ kind of thing too. Well, worried about. Yeah, I don't know about. I don't. I mean, I mean, no doubt that's that's true in some cases. Um, uh, um, but I think a lot of it was just trying to keep people in their place. But we have strayed far away from Bluebeard. Um, What's Bluebeard? All oh, right. This was a this is the book club episode. Hey, did you have a hard copy? See, yeah. that that's the cool original um it's got that boot that uh cowboy boot with uh, uh <laughs> that that's like all done up fancy. Where, where I you... have this I have this cruddy um uh trade paperback. Where, where'd you find that one, Teresa? Did, was it? I got it off of Thrift Books. Did you I really? ordered it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thrift and, books. And, uh, you know, sometimes what you think you're getting from Thrift Books is not what you get from Thrift Books. But I was very pleased when this came. 
All right. It's a nice copy. I, yeah. I, th I think I'll, I'm going to read a hard copy for the next one. It, it is tough doing the audio, trying to pay attention yeah. to things at once. So I found myself having to go back a lot and re-listen. And so I did I that with Rex Stout and I think I suffered by listening to it. So yeah, I came to a similar conclusion. The voices were funny though. The guy, the guy was putting on the voices for, you know, when he, when it was uh Karabikin's dad talking. <laughs> I am from Armenia. From <laughs> Armenia, Jeff. How much did you pay? How much did you pay for that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so go ahead. Did you did you mention that uh, so when, when you talked about his collection, you know, he he collected some pretty cool paintings throughout his life. Um, but a lot of those paintings he collected were like payments, right? To him, because he was always having to pay for his right. Well, so he, he would he would pony up hard cash. Um, and I, I can't remember if uh Rabo had a job when he was when he was married or rather than just painting, but you know. Willem de Koenig would, you know, or, you know, whatever, uh, Pollock would be in his cups and, um, he would say just, you know, I, I don't have the money to pay you back. So just take a painting and he'd say, okay, I'll take the painting. Uh, well, if I, like, if I remember correctly too, I thought it was kind of funny that, you know, those guys, you know, eventually their paintings would go on to become, you know, masterpieces and then they become famous later on. But, it's kind of funny how they would critique his art so much and how he was nothing like them, right? There, he was just an okay kind of artist, uh -huh. but I thought he was actually making decent money doing caricatures, caricatures, right? Like he'd, he'd do that and he'd make decent money. And then yet these guys who eventually became famous weren't making anything, you know, they were broke all the time. Didn't he even for his one friend, I can't remember his name. Was that a, his friend who was out there at the potato barn with him. Was that a real person? Well, Terry Kitchen and Paul Salinger were both uh, fictional persons. Slazinger? Okay, I think it was, was it, <laughs> was it Kitchen who uh, asked him to actually draw something in the corner because he can't draw. So it was actually Robbo who contributed to one of his famous paintings. Yeah, that would have been Kitchen. Yeah because his writer friend Paul Slazinger Slazinger probably wasn't probably wasn't painting in the potato barn no remember he could only write at home but it turns out he couldn't write at home anymore either so he was kind of a um, tragic case it's funnier now that we're talking about it Maybe that says something about my sense of humor. That you don't think Vonnegut was funny? Well, it some of I no, I thought it was funny, but so I think it went over my head some of it. Like I didn't realize it was supposed to be funny, some of it. Now and now that we're talking about it, I do realize it's supposed to be funny. Yeah. I mean, it's not always laugh out loud funny, but it's certainly wry and ironic and yeah. You know, I mean, I would say that Vonnegut, you know, it's it's satire, so it's somewhat wistful, you know. Um, yeah. So I thought it was funny when he would describe his looks, you know, like him and Paul. 
I got a couple two gut shot iguanas. Gut shot iguanas. That was pretty good, Who wasn't have it? Us? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You might as well move in because nobody else is ever gonna. But then he was wrong. And Cersei Berman. Well, first of all, the cook and her daughter Celeste were there. And I thought that was interesting too. Uh, and I and I and I find as I've gotten older, and okay, so like I have this. Uh, well, so uh, I, I look around suddenly and I'm, uh, you know, just have a, a bullpen filled with uh, damaged 30 year old women. Sorry, Tirza, but you know, you're a type. Well, I am not 30 yet, but okay, point taken. <laughs> I mean, and, um, uh, <laughs> And like younger kids, I mean, it's like, I mean, trying to talk to a high schooler, it's like, oh my God, what do you mean you're a vegan? I mean, how do you even know? What? <laughs> how is that? Why does your, why does your father permit that? I don't, I don't know. It seems crazy <laughs> to me. So I thought that that was interesting too, as Karabekian was uh, dealing with um, uh, the cook's daughter. Uh, and it turns out that Cersei Berman is uh, like the, some sort of Judy Bloom kind of character who writes young adult novels that are poisoning America. Polly Madison. Polly yes. Madison, yeah. So <laughs> um, late late in the book, this is um, Vonnegut writing Rabo uh, uh, about uh, on art, if I may. So he says, uh, uh, when Jeffco or, or Gefco, that was, you know, I'm sure whatever I say, Jared, having listened to the audio book, will I'm have sure the, you call it Jeffco. <laughs> so that was the corporation. Uh, when Gefco hung Windsor Blue number 17 in its lobby with fanfare about such an old company uh, keeping on top of the latest developments, not only in technology, but in the arts, the company's publicity people hoped to say that Windsor Blue number 17 was superlative in terms of size. If not the largest painting in the world, then at least the largest painting in New York City or whatever. But there were several murals right in the city and God knows in the world, which easily exceeded my painting's 512 square feet. The Publicity people wondered if it might not be a record holder for a painting hung on a wall, ignoring the fact that it was, in fact, eight separate panels made it um, in back with C clamps. But that wouldn't do either, since it turned out that the Museum of the City of New York had three continuous paintings on canvas stitched together to be sure, as high as mine, and a third again as long. They were curious artifacts, an early effort at making movies, you might say, since they had rollers at either end. They could be unwound from one and rewound on the other. An audience could see only a small part of the whole at any time. These Brob Dingenhagens, that's, I didn't pronounce that right, but... Um, were decorated with mountains and rivers and virgin forests and limitless grasslands on which buffalo grazed and deserts where diamonds or rubies or gold nuggets might 
uh, be had for the stooping. These were the United States of America. Lectures traveled all over Northern Europe with such pictures in olden times. With assistants to unroll one end and roll up the other, they urged all ambitious and able persons to abandon tired old Europe and lay claim to rich and beautiful properties on the promised land, which were practically theirs for the asking. Why should a real man stay home when he could be raping a virgin continent? So um, that actually turned out to be, start out about his painting, Windsor Blue Number 17, which by the way, was a type of sateen Duralux. That's like actually the corporate name for it. And these huge panels, which were held together by C-clamps, were um, uh, all painted that blue. Ta-da, there you go. And wasn't the Gefco company so progressive to be embracing this art about nothing? Okay, so that was the thing. But then Vonnegut, as Vonnegut often does, transitions to like this history lesson which then transitions to what he considers the raping of the continent. Okay. So um, it's interesting. He wrote, I think very beautifully about uh, the, the forested lands of North America. Um, one of the things that Vonnegut said in this, on the cassette interview that I listened to between 30 and 35 years ago was that <laughs> was that uh, most people's idea of paradise is a small Greek temple in the middle of a golf course. And I actually found that to be very perceptive because um, I actually think that's kind of true that, that many people associate paradise and whatever, however they think they're gonna get there with earthly delights. Um, mm -hmm. the, the pleasures of a beautiful earth. And in fact, um, Bart Giamatti, A. Bartlett Giamatti, who was a professor of classics and medieval literature, and also the uh, commissioner of baseball, and also the father of actor Paul Giamatti, wrote a book called um, uh, The Earthly Paradise and Medieval Literature. I don't know, I have it, um, just because I know there's other three things about him. The fact that he was commissioner of baseball was like the coolest thing, and he died of a heart attack. Um, not a young man, but not an old man either. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Vonnegut, you know, knew that people would love to see a paradise earth. Um, he goes on here in Bluebeard. I had the eight panels purged of every trace of faithless sateen duraluxes and restretched and, and restretched and reprimed. I had them set, uh, sent up to the barn, dazzling white in their restored virginity, just as they had been before. I transmuted them into Windsor Blue number 17. I also think that in his simplicity, Vonnegut repeats himself a lot, which you would think would allow me to remember things like Sateen Duralux and uh, Windsor Blue number 17, but I surely can't. 
Uh, I explained to my wife, that is his first wife, that this eccentric project was an exorcism of an unhappy past, a symbolic repairing of all the damage I had done to myself and others during my brief career as a painter. That was yet another instance, though, of putting into words what could not be put into words, why and how a painting had come to be. The long and narrow barn, a century old, was as much a part of it as all that white, white, white. The powerful floodlights dangled from tracks on the ceiling and were part of it, pouring megawatts of energy into all that white sizing, making it for far wider than I could have believed white could ever be. I had caused those artificial suns to be installed when I received the commission to create Windsor Blue number 17. Anyway, I like the book. I like Vonnegut. I'm sorry I didn't start you off on Palm Sunday. That's okay. Maybe I'll give something else to try. Or, or really Slaughterhouse-Five, which is his most, I mean, again, his most famous book. It's, it's, um, you know, I think, I think that a lot of people embraced Vonnegut because he was, generally anti-war uh slaughterhouse five um which has aliens in it and so is like the thing about the thing about um okay so the uh what i think his name is billy pilgrim is the character is the is the vonnegut like character who survives the firebombing of dresden and is also taken up by aliens but i mean it's not really about aliens I mean, it's not like reading Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury or something. I mean, he's he's just like it. it you know what? It's more like, um, oh, so that happened. Kind of like the use of aliens in Fargo. Like, okay. huh? Didn't ex didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd like that uh yeah yeah um there when you read it let me know there's one line that i always i, I the introduction to um uh uh slaughterhouse five is really memorable um it's like the author rolls out a a, a piece of wallpaper and draws on the back for those of you, I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen wallpaper because it's been out of vogue for, you know, whatever, 50 years or something. Uh, I guess people are still wallpapering in the late seventies, but so 40 years. Um, Coming back though. Uh, yes, yes, it is. And I, you know. Um, Not in my house. Jared, Jared <laughs> you would go for a Roger Sterling uh, geometric uh, effect on your wall and you know it. <laughs> feels like i'm falling into this thing um uh so so anyway he he draws lines and the lines indicate people and sometimes their lives intersect with other lines uh as lives intersect with other lives and then they separate again and then he like does this like big orange crayon i think it does the whole thing in crayon and this is the fire bombing of dresden and very few of the lines come out the other side and somebody says um He's like doing this to 
and 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 you know you're going to try to sell it to hollywood and it's like no i'm not going to sell it to hollywood because it'd have john wayne or frank sinatra or some big movie star make make war seem like a great and glorious thing and i think vonnegut's bottom line was always you know nothing so mundane as the war is hell but you know apparently it is and it's just just the worst 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 aspects of the human condition and you know um he was not going to glorify it the way other writers did or had uh you know um i think i don't know guys like hemingway uh would write about war and it's like well this is this is a terrible awful bloody waste but it's necessary and vonnegut would say no it's never necessary i mean i i honestly think that vonnegut was kind of like a pacifist so i mean i think i, I don't know what that means i mean so i mean if the russians had wanted to like invade america would he just said okay yeah you know I'm, you know i mean i mean somebody horrible is going to be ruling over me so might as well be the russians as the nixon administration or whatever you know um I don't, I don't know really where he came down. I mean, I, I think that he was proud of his military service, but that, I don't, I, yeah, I, just, I, don't, I don't know. It would maybe take a scholar who's read everything he ever wrote uh, to say for sure. I mean, so was he okay with having a military? Did he think that the military was there just to scare the other guys, but we don't intend to, you know, nobody, it should never be used, you know? I don't know. Well, how old was he when he when he did go to war? Like when he man. Served? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm uh, just wondering. He, he probably felt differently about it then, and but it was as he. Well, I don't know. For, I mean, for one thing, his family was really German. Um, I mean, his parents still spoke German, and uh, he he's one of those guys who. Um, uh, had, you know, G G German speaking relatives. I mean, I mean, it, it was just like, well, we're, I mean, there were like American Germans compared to Nazi Germans, you know? Um, but I think he was, I think he was a young man. Um, was he, was his date of birth about that of, well, no, Rabo Karabekian was born in 1916. So that would have been earlier. That would have been like my grandfather's age instead of um, uh, Vonnegut's age. He um, was born in 1922. Okay, so not a lot. Uh, um, not a lot younger than my grandfather or Rabo Karabekian. But uh, so 22 firebombing of dresden was would have been like 43 40 probably 44 so he would have been 20 what year is he born 22 22 yes <clears throat> okay so uh he'd have been 22 in the war yeah okay well, so anyway, so all right, fine. I'm, I picked the wrong Vonnegut book. I'm a heel. No, it was fine. Yeah, no. it's good. 
I enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed talking about it with you guys more than I enjoyed reading it, possibly. (laughs) Or this this has enriched the experience of reading it. Terrific. I hope that our listeners feel that way. You said you've read about eight books since then. (laughs) I I did a count and it's actually 11. So would you like to share what else you've read? Sure. Here's a super nerdy fact since we were sharing super. I've kept a book journal since I was 12 years old. (laughs) So (laughs) it's pretty nerdy. I, um, I honestly thought you were going to say since the pandemic. No. Oh, no. No. no for, kept, for 16 years. <laughs> no. Yeah. So. Again with the math. This podcast. I don't think that was hey, right. Hey, Jeff. Yeah, I man. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you know this, but four out of three people struggle with math. Okay. <laughs> so. That's great. Um, I read. I reread the uh, the ancillary justice trilogy by Am Lecky, which is um, science fiction. And Jeff's not going to like it, but for the listeners out there who might like it, look it up if you like. Kind of um, if you like Ursula K. Le Guin, but maybe more heartwarming, then you'll probably like these books. So if Ursula K. Le Guin did something for the Hallmark Channel, it would be. <laughs> I wouldn't say the Lecky. Hallmark Channel. I said more heartwarming. But okay. Yeah. I, I maybe I misunderstood. <laughs> uh, heartwarming for sentimental treacle. But look, everybody's read. Everybody's reading their thing. I just got uh, uh, a tawdry. Uh, 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 I got Jake Tapper's new book, The Devil May Dance, which takes place in Hollywood in the early 60s with the Rat Pack. And there's like a crime. So it's an adventure story and probably not something that they'll be discussing on podcasts in 35 to 50 years. Uh, okay. I also got the new, uh, well, so the, the founder of Trader Joe's wrote a book and then he died and then his friends published it. So it's like uh, Becoming Trader Joe. Got that too, because Mrs. Winger wanted to read it and I wanted to read it. I, I'm, and I'm hoping that it's not just like uh, how I played by my own rules and beat the big guys, though I think there's going to be a lot of that. I'm hoping that it, it, it conveys a sense of Southern California over the last, you know, third of the 20th century, because this was just a time that just lives in my brain as this like incredibly creative, imaginative time. And the fact that all of those people were just doing all the cocaine in the world sullies it for me, but doesn't quite ruin it because, you know, I dig the Brady Bunch house. I wish I had a conversation pit right now. Aren't we in a conversation pit (laughs) currently? Well, I'm sure our listeners think so. This has been the Managing Expectations uh, book club number three, uh, discussing Kurt Vonnegut's Bluebeard. With me has been uh, 
uh, the exquisite Tears of Major, and Thank the uh, capable Jared Riser. I'm really happy that it. you. <laughs> <laughs> I read a book. I did it. <laughs> well, bud, you listened to a book. But <laughs> that's okay. You know what? Tomato, you know tomato. What? Yeah, no. Uh, audiobooks can be very powerful. So, uh, listen, thanks, you guys. Uh, I know we got, we all got stuff we got to move on to but i appreciate enormously you making time for us uh listeners thank you for being part of uh this managing expectations podcast uh thank you and uh until next time let's go to work let's do it